Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox. Here are today's top stories. Major news in Israel today. Despite massive protests, the country's lawmakers take the first step toward advancing a judicial overhaul. A new law places limits on the powers of Israel's highest court. Texas isn't taking down the floating barriers along the southern border. Find out how the governor responds to the Biden administration's request. The White House threatening to veto Republican-led bills over deeper-than-expected spending cuts. What the bills do and what happens next. More updates on the U.S. soldier who crossed into North Korea. The United Nations begins communicating with the North. Two drone attacks in Moscow, one near the headquarters of the Defense Ministry. Russia accuses Ukraine and is threatening retaliation. And no more unannounced home visits by the IRS. The Tax Enforcement Agency implementing a major policy change. Israeli lawmakers today voted unanimously to pass a new law that ends the Supreme Court's power to rule against the government. NTD's legal correspondent Arlene Richards has more details. Amid months of protests, military defiance, and a rebuke from the Biden administration, Israeli lawmakers today unanimously passed a bill that undercuts the highest court's power to issue decisions against the government. All members of the opposition party walked out during the roll call for the vote. The Reasonableness Standard Bill prevents Israel's Supreme Court from striking down government decisions on the basis that they are unreasonable. Before and after the vote, protesters banged drums and blew horns. UN spokesman Farhan Haq responded to the ongoing protests. Obviously, in any country, we want to make sure that the rule of law and, uh, and respect for all of the institutions of government uh, continue. And of course, uh, we again uh, uh, call on everyone to respect uh, the right uh, to, to people in, inside in any country to peaceful protest. Protesters fear the change will push the country toward a single ruler rather than a democracy. Proponents of the bill say the reasonability standard gives judges excessive powers over decision-making by elected officials. Justice Minister M.K. Levin said in a statement on Monday that the reasonableness standard allows justices to make a decision that has no reasons and no criteria. Today's passage is the first piece of a legislative package designed to make sweeping changes to the judiciary. President Biden has consistently criticized the package. In a statement to Axios on Sunday, Biden urged Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu not to move forward with the vote without a broad consensus. White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre said, following the vote, that it was unfortunate. The White House's views on Israel's judicial changes seem to contrast with its views on proposed changes to the American judicial system. Last week, the Senate passed a bill that favors an enforceable code of conduct for Supreme Court justices. Some Republicans said the bill was an attempt by Democrats to delegitimize the court in retaliation for recent controversial rulings. Last month, a reporter asked President Biden if the Supreme Court had gone rogue. He said this. This is not a normal court. 
The Israel Bar Association said on Sunday that it will challenge the new legislation. They are expected to petition the Supreme Court to cancel the new law. The Supreme Court has the authority to temporarily block the law until it can conduct its own review. Steph? Thanks, Arlene. And with Israel's parliament overturning the so-called reasonableness law, many are saying it never should have existed. To break it down, NTD's Jack Bradley spoke with Rabbi Yaakov Menken, Managing Director of the Coalition for Jewish Values. Rabbi Yaakov Menken, welcome to the show. It's great to have you on. Great to be back with you. Thank you. Well, talk to me about uh, Israel's parliament just overturning this new law about unreasonableness uh, in the judicial system. Can you explain this? What's happened is the Knesset finally passed a measure. There's There's been grumbling about the Supreme Court being out of control literally for decades in Israel. Unlike the U.S. Supreme Court, where the president nominates a candidate for the Supreme Court and the Senate then has to confirm that candidate, what happens in Israel is there is a selection committee. Two members of the selection committee are members of the Supreme Court. Two other members are members of the Bar Association, which means, of course, they, they are beholden to that court in which they will argue as the court of final appeal. And only two members of the selection committee are Knesset members. So basically what you had in Israel was a self-selecting Supreme Court totally undemocratic and taking upon itself, arrogating for itself, the right to overturn Knesset decisions. What they are now overturning in the Knesset is a right that the, that the Supreme Court arrogated for itself to overturn a Knesset decision simply on the grounds that it was, quote unquote, unreasonable. Now, it turns out they, that one of the leftists who was very against this measure did a study of courts around the world, and that immediately got hushed up. It got dropped from the media because the result was that there isn't a court in the world that is able to overturn government decisions simply because the court decides those decisions are not reasonable. That's not how it works. And how, does, only, how did they de deem that it's unreasonable or not? They just had to make up their minds it was unreasonable. It had nothing to do with any law. The most recent example of this is um, Arya Derry, representing the Sephardic Torah party. Uh, he got, uh, his party got over 300,000 votes which means to say over 8% of the vote in a country of, um, of, of 4 million people. Uh, they had the uh, second or third largest representation, I think it's the second, in this current Knesset, which means to say that they were a, a very popular party. And so, of course, he was going to become deputy prime minister as a result of coalition negotiations. Well, the court said that because two decades ago he was convicted in, which crimes, by the way, the right wing said immediately, this was all politically motivated persecution, uh, which, of course, in America we are sadly all too familiar with. But because of that ridiculous persecution of Derry from 20 years ago, and actually more recently in 2022, something about his taxes, they, they went after him again. Well, they said it's not reasonable to have him as a minister. Number one, 
300,000 voters felt otherwise. And number two, there's absolutely no law that says otherwise. Oh, to which number three, it's the Knesset that decided, yes, he can be a minister. So after he was confirmed as a minister, the Supreme Court, which again is not elected, overrode what the Knesset said was appropriate and wanted to do. All, all this law does is take away a power that the Supreme Court arrogated for itself, never should have had, and indeed never, it does not have in any other country. Now that leads me to my next point. How is this likely to impact politics with the overturning of this 1980s law? Well, the politics in Israel, uh, the protests are going to continue, but the protests were already, you know, it's really interesting. There was a lot of media coverage of 100,000 protesters. There were, in Jerusalem, in against this law, there were 400,000 protesters in Tel Aviv in favor of this new law to, to rein in this out-of-control Supreme Court. So as far as the politics in Israel is concerned, Look, the right wing won a democratic election. This is what happens when you win elections. The, and, and when you lose elections, things are not going to go your way. This is something that the left in Israel is finally going to have to come to terms with. It's amazing to watch how this, uh, this plays out in America, though, because the American left, which is simultaneously claiming that the Supreme Court in the United States is extreme and out of control, is saying to Netanyahu, no, you can't rein in a Supreme Court which actually is extreme and out of control and out of touch with, again, Supreme Courts around the world. Well, with that, Rabbi Yaakov Menken, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for having me. Turning to the southern border and Texas's initiatives to secure it. Texas Governor Greg Abbott is pushing back at the DOJ. And the Texas State Attorney General's office is backing him up. At issue is the floating barriers in the Rio Grande River to stop migrants from crossing the border. In a letter sent last week, the Biden Justice Department said in part, the barriers, quote, violate federal law, raise humanitarian concerns, and present serious risks to the public safety and the environment. The federal DOJ gave, gave Texas until today to remove the border barriers. But in a letter to President Biden, Abbott refused, saying, quote, Texas will see you in court. The Texas Attorney General issued a statement in support of Governor Abbott's position. Is the government secretly collecting non-human aircraft and reverse engineering them? A congressional hearing this week will include whistleblower testimony from a former intelligence officer who worked in the Pentagon's Task Force on Unidentified Anomalous Phenomena, or UAP. NTD's Melina Wisecup has more details. Melina, what's the goal of this Wednesday's hearing? The goal with this hearing is to shed light on if there's been transparency or if the government has been lying to both Congress and the American people for decades about unidentified anomalous phenomena, or UAPs. We've had a heck of a lot of pushback about this hearing. We've had members of Congress who fought us. We've had members of the intelligence community and also the Pentagon. Even NASA backed out on us. There are a lot of people who don't want this to come to light. One of the three witnesses is a former Pentagon intelligence officer who's now a whistleblower. His name is David Grush, and Grush says that the government right now has in its possession a number of what he describes as non-human vehicles, and that there are indications that there could be extraterrestrial life forms, which is contrary to the government's stance that we are the only life form. 
Arrow has found no credible evidence thus far of extraterrestrial activity, off-world technology, or objects that defy the known laws of physics. Are there agreements between non-human intelligences and the American government? I think that's a question that I would like to know all the details of as well. Grush has handed over classified information to Congress and the Intelligence Community Inspector General, who says Grush is credible. This is a topic that both Democrats and Republicans care deeply about. Most of this data is classified, not available to the public. And there is a bipartisan effort to make this information public. Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer introduced a bill that would declassify UFO records, and he reportedly plans to introduce this bill as an amendment to the National Defense Authorization Act, which is expected to come to the floor for a vote later this week. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskup, NTD News. Next, seven Republicans now meet the polling criteria to join the first presidential debate in August. However, not all of them meet the donation criteria specified by the Republican National Committee. NTD's Arian Pazdar takes a look. The first Republican primary debate is set to take place on August 23 in Milwaukee. The Republican National Committee, or RNC, set forward three criteria for candidates who want to participate, including a polling on the nation threshold and a pledge to agree supporting the eventual party nominee. For the polling requirement, candidates have to get at least 1% in three national polls or a combination of national polls and a poll from the early voting states. As of Sunday, seven candidates met the polling requirements. Those are former President Trump, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, tech entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy, former Vice President Mike Pence, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, South Carolina Senator Tim Scott, and former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie. However, not all of them are meeting the donation threshold. The rule says candidates have to receive contributions from at least 40,000 individual donors, with at least 200 unique donors in 20 or more states. Mike Pence is the only candidate meeting the polling requirement, but not the donation requirement. He commented on the issue on Sunday. Having 40,000 individual donors, we're literally working around the clock. About, got about a month to go. I'm confident that we'll be there. We're not offering kickbacks. Uh, we're not offering gift cards. We're not even offering soccer tickets. We're just, uh, we're just asking people for their support. In an attempt to meet the strict donation criteria, North Dakota Governor Doug Burgum offered $20 gift cards in return for campaign donations of as little as $1. Miami Mayor Francis Suarez offered a chance to see Argentine soccer legend Lionel Messi's first game for Miami. Meanwhile, Trump previously said he might boycott the debate and hold a competing event instead. During his 2016 campaign, Trump also boycotted the final GOP gathering before the Iowa caucuses and instead held his own campaign event. Ariane Pastar, NTD News. And new footage from the Capitol Police's CCTV cameras, obtained by the Epic Times, adds crucial new details to the tragic death of Roseanne Boyland on January 6th. Let's see some of that footage now. Here we see D.C. Fire and EMS Department paramedics in the crypt continuing resuscitation efforts on Roseanne at the U.S. Capitol. That's after CPR and other life-saving efforts inside a basement entrance to the Capitol failed following her collapse outside the Lower West Terrace Tunnel on January 6, 2021. The security video deflates claims made in the initial Capitol Police report about Roseanne's death, 
which had said that she collapsed in the rotunda and then a police officer started CPR on her. Here to discuss this development is Joe Hanneman, Epic Times reporter and the co-producer of the documentary The Real Story of January 6th. We spoke earlier today. Joe, thanks so much for joining us. This new footage stands in stark contrast to what the police said happened to Roseanne Boyland on January 6th. How does it change the narrative surrounding her death? Well, probably the earliest report that anyone got about what happened to Roseanne was the word that her parents received from the Metropolitan Police Department. Um, and that came, I believe it was about four o'clock in the morning on the 7th that uh, the Capitol Police reported they had found Roseanne wandering in the rotunda and that she had just simply collapsed there. She was basically wandering aimlessly by herself and she had collapsed. And as it turns out, none of that is true. She was never in the rotunda. She wasn't by herself and uh, she collapsed quite a bit earlier, at least 35 minutes earlier in the, in the tunnel. Uh, which was two levels down from the rotunda. So it really uh, poked a hole in, in the, the first story that the, the parents were told. And um, I think they had some suspicions at the beginning that they, that just didn't sound right with what they were hearing from uh, some of Roseanne's friends. And you've learned from her family that Roseanne was shot in the chest with a pepper ball just before she fell. Do you think that this could change the public conversation about January 6th, and if so, how? Absolutely, this was, a, I think, a crucial detail. It was new to me, uh, information I received from Roseanne's mother, Cheryl, uh, that her companion that day, uh, on, or for the trip to D.C., Justin Winchell, uh, had told the family that Roseanne was struck in the chest. He, he called it a rubber bullet, but after checking the body cam of the officers in the back of the tunnel, it, it appears most likely it was a pepper ball, uh, which in the case of Roseanne was even worse because a pepper ball, when it strikes, it explodes and it releases a cloud of uh, powder, which has a very uh, irritating pepper-based uh, chemical in it. So it could set off all sorts of reactions. And from what they were told, she went down after being shot with this projectile. Now, I talked to our use of force expert, Stan Kephart, who was in our documentary last year, and he called the, the use of pepper balls in that tunnel, that enclosed space, he called it criminal negligence. Uh, he said that there just is no justification for firing into a crowd uh, when they had already released gas into the crowd, that it was likely to do exactly what happened, which was to set off panic. And with that, what lessons do you think that we can learn from these new insights into the events on January 6th? Well, I think it's clear in this case that a grand jury needs to be impaneled to investigate uh, Roseanne's death and, and probably some other uh, instances that happened that day. Uh, certainly Congress could have a role in this uh, as they're starting to ramp up some of their January 6th investigations uh, to look into this and to push to get some of the records that are still being withheld uh, that the Boylan family would very much like to see from the police and from the, uh, the D.C. Fire Department. So uh, it, it clearly really needs a, a thorough investigation and considering that there were possibly serious crimes committed, a grand jury would be 
a natural thing to do. All right, thank you so much. Joe Hanneman, great to hear your thoughts. Thank you. Coming up, the United Nations begins communicating with the North Korean regime. It's over the U.S. soldier who crossed into the country last week. And the latest in the Russia-Ukraine war. Russia accuses Ukraine of launching drone attacks on Moscow and is threatening retaliation. We'll have that and more after the break. Setting up a spending clash in the fall, the White House today threatened to veto Republican-backed bills, saying they would hurt President Biden's agenda. NTD's Iris Tao has more from the White House. The White House announces that President Biden will veto a pair of Republican-backed spending bills that would defund LGBTQ and abortion programs if they ever reach his desk. In statements on Monday morning, the White House says it strongly opposes Republicans' appropriations bills for the Department of Veterans Affairs and Department of Agriculture, saying they would harm access to reproductive health care and threaten the health of LGBTQI plus Americans and prevent the administration from promoting diversity, equity, and inclusion. The pushback from the White House comes after the House earlier this month passed a defense bill that included what some House Republicans called anti-woke amendments targeting social issues. The bill to not only insist that the laws be followed, but also to ultimately save countless lives of the unborn that otherwise would have lost their lives from this horrible policy. And the White House is also arguing that Republicans are demanding deeper spending cuts than what were agreed on in the debt ceiling deal struck in May. Lawmakers will have to discuss these appropriations bills this week, but it's unclear if Republicans' measures would get enough support in the Democrat-controlled Senate, let alone getting to President Biden's desk. Reporting from the White House, Iris Howe, NTD News. The United Nations is now involved in the case of the U.S. soldier who crossed into North Korea, Private Travis King. The deputy commander of the U.N. command based in South Korea says they're talking with the North Korean army. The first is the primary concern for us is Private King's welfare. The conversation uh, has commenced with the KPA through the mechanisms of the armistice agreement. He added that the case is still under investigation and he could not provide further detail. Communications with North Korea happen inside the demilitarized zone. The United Nations controls the South Korean side of the joint security area, the one place where the North and South can meet for talks. The North Korean regime remains silent on the case of King, who willingly ran across the border during a tour on July 18th. King has not been publicly seen or heard from since then. And Russia has vowed to retaliate against Ukraine after two drones damaged buildings in Moscow this morning. Nobody was hurt in the attack, but one drone struck close to the defense ministry's headquarters in what it called an act of terror. The act fo follows Russian strikes against the Ukrainian port city of Odessa. Russia on Monday accused Ukraine of a, quote, terrorist drone attack on Moscow. Moscow's mayor, Sergei Sobyanin, claimed that the alleged assault had hit two buildings, but said there were, quote, no serious damage or casualties. Russian TV station Rossiya 24 said that specialists had managed to jam the drones, which crashed without reaching their targets. It was unclear whether the drones hit the buildings when they were downed or whether they deliberately targeted those buildings. 
One building was a high-rise office damaged on Likachev Avenue in the city's south. Russia's state news agencies reported, citing emergency services, that drone fragments were also found near a building on the Komsomolsky Avenue. Reuters footage showed a damaged building on the street. Yes, Bola. This local resident said she was woken by an explosion when her building started to shake. This man said he'd also heard a bang, but didn't see anything flying, even though his windows were open at the time. The alleged attack comes after nearly a week of Russia's continued pounding of Ukraine's southern port of Odessa. On Sunday, missiles killed one person there, injuring scores and badly damaging a historic Orthodox cathedral. Video obtained by Reuters showed the cathedral in flames after the attack. In his nightly address, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said almost 50 buildings were damaged, including 25 architectural monuments. The liquidation of the aftermath of the Russian terrorists attack on our Odessa continues all day today. 19 missiles of different types were launched on purpose to make them harder to shoot down and cause more destruction. There was no immediate comment from Kyiv about the drone attack. Ukraine almost never publicly claims responsibility for attacks inside Russia or on Russian-controlled territory in Ukraine. But it has been saying in recent months that destroying Russia's military infrastructure helps Kyiv's counteroffensive. Venezuela's oil minister says the country expects to sign licenses by year-end for developing the nation's vast natural gas reserves. It's reportedly in early-stage talks over plans to export natural gas to the European Union. This comes on the heels of a decision by the Biden administration last year to allow Chevron to produce some oil in Venezuela, despite U.S. sanctions on the Maduro regime. Joining us now to discuss is Daniel DiMartino, a Venezuelan freedom activist and economist. Since moving to the U.S., Daniel has dedicated himself to explaining how socialism destroyed his homeland. He's the founder of The Dissident Project and senior contributor to Young Voices. Daniel, welcome. As someone who grew up in Venezuela under Maduro's socialist dictatorship, seeing the declining wealth in the country and alongside that the huge investigation into corruption in the country's oil industry, how do you see new plans to ramp up natural gas production? Do you think it will benefit Venezuelans? I don't think it will benefit Venezuelans. And to be honest, I don't think it's even going to happen in the first place. Uh, the, the main reason why Venezuela is in a terrible economic disaster now is because of the government's takeover of oil and, and all the other industries. There is no way they have the technological, the labor, the capital capacity to actually recapture uh, the, the gases that come from oil production and export into Europe. Not even talking about whether, even if they were capable, how much of a disregard it shows of the European Union for Venezuelans' human rights. When we look at human rights, you know, the U.S. sanctioned Venezuela to try to force out Maduro in what they saw as an illegitimate dictatorship and all of the, um, you know, various human rights issues there. And yet last year, the Biden administration allowed Chevron to restart some of its operations there. So what kind of message do you think this sends to the Venezuelan regime and to the world? Well, look, this, this announcement of the EU about uh, recapturing gas from Venezuela to sell it in Europe comes right after the visit of Venezuela's vice president to the EU, where she met with the prime minister of Spain, who just got out of a tough election, uh, in which Venezuela was a main issue, uh, meeting with the president of the European Commission, meeting with many members of the European Parliament. And the shame of this is that it only took them a couple of years to forget about the thousands of people who are killed in Venezuela to cozy up with human rights violators, with drug dealers, all under the 
the, the message that energy is more important, but at what price? That's what Venezuelans ask, at what price are, are you willing to pay for our energy if you're even going to get it? And that price is our human rights. As an economist, with your insights on socialist regimes, what do you think the U.S. should do to protect freedom and allow the U.S. and Venezuela to flourish economically? Well, look, we're looking forward to next year's uh, presidential election in Venezuela, where I, I know it's going to be rigged. Uh, I mean, like all these elections in the last several years have been. But the U.S. and the EU and the rest of the world will have an opportunity next year to stand up by the millions of people who are going to go and protest and risk their lives and thousands get killed uh, and, and are arrested in this process. And, you know, many of these ways to, to help are by coordinating with regional governments, are by, you know, perhaps stop, not keep buying oil, by arresting the people who, who commit these crimes and travel abroad. You know, tomorrow is going to be another audience in New York City against uh, El Pollo Carvajal, which is a, a transnational criminal from Venezuela who helped Chavez. And, and we need to arrest more people like this. That's what's going to do justice for the Venezuelans. It's not going to be giving money to, to the regime that oppresses us. It's actually to do justice for us. Daniel DiMartino, thank you so much for your insights. Thank you, Stephanie. Coming up, Musk unveils new X logo for Twitter. The rebrand is just the latest in a series of abrupt moves by Musk since he took over. And there's growing concern about foreign entities buying U.S. land, specifically farmland and areas near military sites. But legislation in the House could stop it. More when we return. Welcome back. If you're just joining us now, here are some of today's top headlines. Israeli lawmakers approve the judicial reform bill amid major protests and rebuke from the Biden administration. The reform essentially ends the Israeli Supreme Court's power to rule against the government. Supporters say it brings power back into the hands of voters. The United Nations Command says it's communicating with North Korea over the U.S. soldier who ran across the border. The North Korean regime remained silent, and new details of the case are not revealed. Two drones attacked buildings in Moscow today, with one of them striking close to the Russian Defense Ministry headquarters. Russia is vowing to retaliate against Ukraine. The IRS has announced a major policy change. In most cases, IRS agents will no longer make unannounced visits to taxpayers' homes. According to a statement by the IRS, the reason for the change is to lower the risk that anxiety-provoking surprise home visits could spiral out of control, posing a hazard to both taxpayers and agency field officers. The move is effective immediately. For decades, IRS officers have knocked on the doors of taxpayers' homes without advance notice in attempts to resolve delinquent tax ma matters. The agency says in recent years there's been a rise of scam artists posing as IRS agents and that, that created confusion for both taxpayers and local law enforcement. The change comes amid the IRS's recent rollout of a new strategic operating plan. It's an effort, in part, to put a kinder face on the tax enforcement agency. 
and Twitter is rebranding. Elon Musk today unveiled the new X logo for Twitter, placing the famous, replacing the famous blue bird. His Twitter handle now features the new X. Is this a good idea? NTD Business's Don Mott talks with a social media expert. And now joining me is Andrew Selipak, social media professor at the University of Florida. So, Andrew, you know, I I'm dying to hear your, your reaction on this. Good idea or bad idea that Twitter changed its logo to X? I think it can go either way. I mean, on the one side, it's very difficult for a brand to kind of give up this brand recognition that it's had for, you know, 15 years now. I mean, it, Twitter and tweeting has become part of our natural vocabulary, you know, and, and I don't think it's going to be replaced anytime soon by saying, well, I re-X'd it, I, I X'd um, or I, I DM somebody on the X. So from the perspective of a branding, um, you know, it's, you're giving up on a lot. You're giving up on the color scheme. You're giving up on the logo. You're giving up on just part of our natural vocabulary. Flip side, there's also a lot of negatives that go along with the Twitter brand. A lot of people have a negative impression of the Twitter brand. So from a branding perspective, it can really go either way. I mean, can you really imagine people saying X, you know, instead of tweeting, I, instead of saying I tweeted, can you imagine people saying I X'd something? I re-X'd, I, I liked your X. Um, yeah, and from that perspective, I think, again, it, when you are such a, a part of the vocabulary, with the, you know, the equivalent being sort of Google, like we don't say, did you use a, a search engine for that? Hey, can you Yahoo that? Can you Bing that? You know, it's, did you Google it? Can I Google it? Let me go Google it. Uh, when it's part of the natural vocabulary, I mean, that's what a brand wants. And they're kind of giving up on that sort of brand recognition that it has in, in the sort of social media space. So, of course, uh, Elon Musk doesn't want Twitter to fail. Um, so he must have some level of confidence, I would imagine. So w where do you think he's coming from? W why change it? What's his motivation? Well, I think there's two things. One, he just likes the letter X. He named his kid X. He's got a Tesla X. At uh, one point, sort of PayPal was named, you know, just X.com. Uh, he has an infatuation with that letter. The flip side is, you know, Twitter is not the most successful social media platform. It's obviously not as successful as Facebook, as Instagram, as TikTok, uh, YouTube. What he is most likely trying to do is change Twitter from this sort of simple microblogging platform and give it more options, give it more features. And in doing so, I think the rebranding is to kind of indicate that there are new features to come. What those new features will be is sort of the big question we're left with at the moment. How has the reception been on this news? I, you know, the reception's been pretty mixed. Uh, you know, if you look at a lot of mainstream media reports, they don't like it, but they often don't like Elon Musk anyhow. Uh, Jack Dorsey basically kind of came out and said that he was okay with it, despite the fact it's changing the thing that he put out there. Um, you see some celebrities who are against it, but I think for the most part, people kind of want to just take a look and see. I mean, I was on Twitter earlier and again, still using the term Twitter on my phone. It still looked the same on my desktop. That's where I saw the X. I saw the new color scheme. So there's a lot of people if they're not if they haven't accessed it on their phone yet, they may not have noticed the change. Do you think this will lead people to leave Twitter? 
I don't think anyone's going to leave Twitter because of a new name. I think it's really going to be dependent on what these new features will be that will be added to the platform and how the platform itself may change that could lead some people to be less active or potentially leave the platform. Um, but I don't think the name change itself will have a big impact on amount of time spent on there or people leaving the platform. All right, thank you so much today, Andrew. Always great hearing your insight. Leaders in the House of Representatives are introducing legislation to protect American land from foreign ownership. This includes farmland and national security sites. California Representative Mike Thompson and Wisconsin's Representative Mike Gallagher introduced legislation earlier this month to strengthen and expand protections around national security sites, critical infrastructure, and farmland. In a statement, Thompson said, protecting national security and food security go hand in hand in our region, which is why it is vital to know who owns land around national security sites. This comes as a mysterious company called the Flannery Group spent about $800 million to buy large areas of land near the Travis Air Force Base in Fairfield, California. According to corporate filings, Flannery Group is a branch of Flannery Associates based in Delaware. This branch is registered as a foreign company in California. It is currently unknown who owns the company or what the land will be used for. But this recently introduced legislation aims to avoid a repeat of a 2021 incident when a China-based company bought farmland in South Dakota near a military base. Gallagher, who is also chairman of the Select Committee on the Chinese Communist Party, also voiced his concerns about possible foreign adversaries owning U.S. land. He said, the United States cannot allow foreign adversaries like the Chinese Communist Party and its proxies to acquire real estate near sensitive sites like military bases or telecom infrastructure, potentially exploiting our critical technology and endangering our service members. In May, Biden proposed tighter controls over foreign land purchases by adding eight additional military installations to the list for national security review. Up next, a new study says that one key hobby makes kids smarter and healthier. What is it? And what if your child isn't into it? And in college basketball, a rivalry renewed. We'll look at the newly announced series between powerhouse programs Kansas and North Carolina when we come back. who read for fun generally end up smarter than kids who don't, according to a new study. Researchers found the ideal amount of time kids should read, as well as all the ways reading helps. And we talk with experts about kids who don't like reading. How do we get them to enjoy it? NTD's Faye Quarter has the details. One key hobby will make your kids smarter and healthier when they're older. Reading for fun. Researchers at Cambridge and Hudan Universities found that young kids who enjoy reading develop larger brains than kids who don't. They perform better at cognitive tests and have better mental health when they get older. I've got three kids of my own. I, we have books all over the house. I'm constantly encouraging them to read, and thankfully, they actually do. It's going to help they, you know, them from being I'm sad and upset with things and reading to help the depression. I have two children. Girls. It helped them with their test scores, it helped them with their vocabulary, it helped them with their confidence. Experts say there are more benefits to reading than just those. 
Research has shown a variety of advantages. The benefits for reading and starting reading early in life are just astronomical. They get better every time another researcher looks at the practice. Mike Bergen is the president of the National Test Prep Association. He says when young children read for pleasure, this results in improved reading speed and comprehension, as well as greater verbal intelligence and cognitive ability. A key finding from the study is that the ideal amount of reading is around 12 hours a week. That's a little less than two hours a day. At 12 hours, they're still able to be a kid and uh, engage in the other activities that they might want to do. And so you're activating different parts of the body and the brain. Christopher Hathaway is the founder of Advantage IV Tutoring. He says spending 12 hours a week maximizes the results. The study says that if kids spend over 12 hours a week, it could possibly harm them. The researchers believe this may be because they're spending too much time sitting and not engaging in other healthy activities, such as sports or socializing. So what if you have a kid who doesn't like reading? Some tips. Encourage reading and uh, never to use it as any form of punishment. Uh, so you want to have that kind of positive reinforcement. Hathaway says the way you present reading to your kids is very important. They may not like it if the books are forced on them. But a child read what he or she wants, which is to say there's no wrong way to read. Comics are great. Graphic novels are great. Articles online are great. If a student loves to read sports articles, that's fantastic. Mike Bergen, the president of the National Test Prep Association, advises bringing kids to local libraries or the kids section of local bookstores. There, they can read what they want and meet other kids who like to read. Faye Quarter, NTD News. And now for your sports news. Here's NTD's Dave Martin with a look at the storyline from golf's British Open. That's right, Steph. Brian Harmon won the British Open yesterday for his first major title by whopping six strokes. The 36-year-old, who's ranked 26th in the world, became one of the oldest first-time major winners in golf history. Yet the focus for most of the week was really about Rory McIlroy's eight-year major drought, which will now continue. McIlroy, who won the Scottish Open two weeks ago and finished runner-up in last month's U.S. Open, finished in sixth place yesterday, seven strokes behind Harmon. The second-ranked player in the world won the PGA Championship back in 2014 at age 25 for his fourth and last major victory. Yet the now 34-year-old has consistently been in the hunt, finishing in the top 10 in seven of his last eight major appearances. Yet McElroy, who's from Northern Ireland, retained a positive outlook afterwards, saying, quote, I can't sit here and be too frustrated if you think about my performances in the majors between like 2016 and 2019, this is a lot better than that. And in college basketball news, powerhouse programs Kansas and North Carolina have announced a two-game home-and-home series starting in November of 2024. The Jayhawks and Tar Heels are first and third respectively in all-time wins, though Carolina boasts more Final Fours, 21-16, and national titles 6-4 than KU. Yet the two Blue Blood schools have met just a dozen times over the years, with seven coming in the NCAA tournament and five at the Final Four. Most recently, the Jayhawks came from behind to beat the Tar Heels in the 2022 National Championship game, 72-69. As for the upcoming series, the first game will be on November 8, 2024 in Kansas, with the second game set for the following November in North Carolina. 
And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, nine baseball games are on, including a pivotal game in the NL Central as the suddenly hot Cincinnati Reds, who've won five straight and are now just half a game out of first place, play at first place Milwaukee. And that's it for your sports news today. Steph, back to you. Thanks, Dave. And over in California, excitement fills the air as the highly anticipated fair comes to Orange County, promising a thrilling blend of entertainment, rides, and mouth-watering treats for all to enjoy. NTD's Christina Corona has more from the fairgrounds. The Orange County Fair is here, and they are having a month-long event showcasing thrilling rides, a petting zoo, amazing food, all sorts of live entertainment, and much more. So let's take a look around and enjoy this year's experience. The Orange County Fair is a 23-day annual fair that is held every summer at the OC Fair and Event Center in Costa Mesa, California. It is the ninth largest fair in the United States. Yes, we're very excited about this year's theme for the 133rd OC Fair. It's Happy Together. It's all about bringing the community together for summer's best party. We have three new rides. We have tons of new food. You can get deep fried s'mores. You can get a campfire breakfast cake. It's amazing. There's so much to have here. You can get a maple bacon smoothie. And in addition to that, all the exhibit buildings are open and free. Along with rides and entertainment, the Orange County Fair is well known for allowing guests to interact with the animals. From animal exhibits to Alaskan pig races to livestock auctions, there are many opportunities for guests to engage with animals. We have a giant variety of every breed under the sun of goats and sheep. And then we have our llamas, alpacas, miniature zebu cow. We have our wallabies. You even see the baby wallaby in the mommy's pouch over there. Uh, we have our potbelly pig, miniature donkey, and then of course our chickens and our ducks and our miniature zebu cow. And all these guys are super excited to see everybody at the OC Fair. When it comes to fair food, the OC Fair is renowned for its wild and unconventional food offerings that will delight your taste buds. Chicken Charlie's has been part of the OC Fair for over 30 years now. We love coming out here. There's some of our most popular items are the Maui chicken, which is a pineapple bowl that's hollowed out, served with uh, fresh chunks of pineapple, rice, and our teriyaki chicken. It's fantastic. We also do a donut, Krispy Kreme donut cheeseburger. The OC Fair is open through August 13th from 11 a.m. to 11 p.m. every day except Friday and Saturday when they close at midnight. Be sure to purchase tickets online in advance as tickets will not be sold at the gates. So come out to the Orange County Fair and enjoy the thrilling rides, live entertainment and delicious food before it's all gone. Christina Corona, NTD News, Costa Mesa. And that's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox. Good night.